0: Hello, and thanks for joining us on Rare Bird Radio. I'm Sharon Weil, author of the new nonfiction book, Changeability, How Artists, Activists, and Awakeners Navigate Change, about how to meet change with more flexibility, effectiveness, and ease. And I'm also the host of the podcast, Passing from Normal, where I talk with innovative changemakers and change writers about how they are seeding change in the world. Today we're here on Rare Bird Radio in conversation with Sam Polk, former hedge fund trader and current food justice innovator, and the author of For the Love of Money. In his book, Sam tells the story of how he got swept up in the Wall Street culture of extreme greed and accumulation, the childhood factors that compelled him to want to do so, and how he walked away from that life to find one that mattered even more. Sam is currently the co founder and CEO of Every Table, a social enterprise that sells healthy, delicious meals at prices everyone can afford. And he is the founder and executive director of Grocery Ships, a nonprofit organization that provides financial assistance and education for low income families with obesity and food addiction. So, hello, Sam.
1: Hi, thanks for having me on.
0: Great! I'm glad that we get to be in uh, in conversation with each other. So, um, from reading your book, your story is a rocky road with, fortunately, a happier ending. Um, and your book does not shy away from revealing the darker corners of your journey. So, I want to know what compelled you to write this book.
1: You know, you know, my I, I was this really shy, insecure kid who. Sort of couldn't figure out how to be in the world, and from a pretty early age, I developed this desire to make money and to be successful, and I sort of came to see that as a, the sort of panacea um, of all my problems. And you know, after I left Wall Street and had gone through this journey um, to sort of be able to do that. You know, I was reflecting on my life and how you know powerful that desire for money and that fantasy about money as a fix had become in my life, and I I sort of understood that that was probably true for a lot of people out there that I wasn't the only one who felt like that, um, but I had never read a book that really explored that feeling from the inside um, with you know honesty and vulnerability. Um, And so I just wanted to, I basically wanted to write a book for the kids who are like I was, who are sort of young and insecure and trying to awkwardly find their place in the world and don't know how to do that.
0: Yeah, your book is, your book is very honest. And um, like I said, you know, you don't shy away from revealing your dark corners. And um, have you always been such an honest person?
1: Oh, no. Um, I I would say um, earlier I was a a very dishonest person. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of my story is, you know, by the time I was 22, you know, uh, after uh, just a year and a half of college, I had been, you know, kicked off the wrestling team and arrested three times and um, suspended from Columbia and then fired from a job that I took after that suspension because I got in a fight on office property and so I you know I got in a fair amount of trouble and was not a sort of um you know quality contributor to society. And so a lot of my process and and what the book really covers is that journey from that kid to you know who I ultimately became and that journey entailed a lot of therapy, a lot of counseling, um and a lot of sort of self-excavation. And, and what I sort of found at the end of that was that, you know, I didn't have anything that I was embarrassed about anymore. I didn't have anything that I was trying to hide. And, you know, one of the wonderful things about that, even though it was a painful process, is then then there wasn't anything that I wasn't sort of free and willing to admit.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, nice. Nice. Um you know, uh, I'm someone who's very interested in how and why people make significant change. And so I'm very interested in turning points and, um, you know, in your book, you say that you walked away from a $3.6 million bonus because you felt like it wasn't enough money. And, um, was that the turning point when you left wall street or was there something else? What, What was the turning point or what are the turning points that you see in your life?
1: You know, um, there was this one moment where uh, it was during the crash of 2009 and I was a senior trader for one of the largest hedge funds in the world. And I was in a meeting with my billionaire boss and several other traders and we were discussing the new hedge fund regulations being proposed by Congress. And Everybody in the room thought they were just a terrible idea, um, but I was starting to think that they might make sense. you know I had seen these banks go down and uh, how much danger the financial system was in, and I knew that we were at least partially responsible for that, and so I said so I said, you know well well, I think these would be better for the system as a whole and it was like one of those moments where you know the music gets cut off, and everybody's suddenly silent and my boss looked at me with this withering glare and said you know Sam I don't have the brain capacity to think about the system as a whole I can only think about what's good for us and our business and you know it wasn't it wasn't that I judged him so much as that I saw myself in him and I realized that I had been you know self seeking that that was basically the definition of my career and I think by that point I had done so much sort of counseling and work and that, that I, I was, it was just starting to dawn on me that maybe I wasn't the center of the universe and maybe, you know, we are here for a purpose bigger than just to survive for ourselves. Um, and so I started wanting to do, but, but you know, that's the story I tell, but the truth of the matter is, like, it, it was almost You know, that's a big moment, but it was almost like death by a thousand cuts, you know, like Wall Street culture, which at one point I had just felt a part of, um, became something that I felt apart from, you know, and I became like the conversations that would happen and what people would talk about and what was interesting to them, you know, had been interesting to me, but I started to find that it no longer was.
0: Right. Well, you know, I really see in all of the looking into change that I've been doing, I really see that all change happens incrementally and that even sudden change, big turning points, still have a history, whether it's seen or unseen, that has evolved and brought us to the moment. And so when you say, you know, death by a thousand cuts, I go, yeah, because it's more like that, right? Something in you, whether it was the work with your therapist or whether it was other, you know, aspects of your life, was starting to unhook all of this belief, right? Or all of this activity was starting to unravel already so that something, you know, you could hear something differently, right? Maybe a year before you were so interested in being part of that game that you wouldn't have heard it that way, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's 100% right. You know, I, my parents um, were very different. So my mom was a nurse practitioner midwife who would always take my brother and I down to Skid Row while she would run sort of free clinics for the homeless. And my dad was this you know, Willie Loman, ambitious um, salesman who was always talking about the big score. And, you know, when I was growing up, my dad sort of had all the power in our household. And he was the one that I looked up to. And so I think about what you were saying. And, like, I think my, like, early 20s and college years were defined by me trying to, in some way, become my dad or live up to my dad or impress my dad. And you know, in my you know, when I was about twenty-six and twenty-seven, my dad and I had a falling out, so we stopped talking. And I think it may have been that separation that sort of allowed the the parts of him that were in me to sort of fade in importance, and then the parts of my mom that were inside me to sort of grow. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah.
0: Wow. That's interesting. You know, and you talk about, um, you know, that the accumulation of wealth, <clears throat> excuse me, isn't just about wealth. It's also very much about power and it's about position. Right. And being sort of above it all and having access. Right. That's how that's how we that's how we view it. You know, I've spent a lot of time in the film and television business, and there's a little bit of a little bit or a lot of that going on there, too. That a lot of reasons why people want to get into those businesses is because of the power that goes along with it and the you know celebrity that goes along with it. So um
1: Yeah, and I'll tell you that I think I think there's basically three three main reasons why people want money. Um and 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 I think that I think that most people don't understand sort of the order of those three, at least as it applies to most people. So I think the first reason is, you know, because money buys nice stuff. Um, and that's certainly true. I mean, it's definitely true that a Range Rover is nicer than, you know, a beat up Pinto and uh four seasons is nicer than a motel six and having money allows you to have that stuff. And that's nice. Um, But I actually think in the whole scheme of things, that reason is actually pretty small. The second reason I think is freedom from worry. And I think that's a big one for so many people is this idea that if you have enough money, then you no longer have to worry. And in a very weird way, that's true. I mean, there's these this guy in um, San Francisco, the head of Y Combinator is doing this experiment with uh, a universal basic income, which is where they pay every citizen Uh, a, a living wage basically for doing no work. And one of the things he said that struck me about that is that, you know, he said he thinks that we'll look back a thousand years from now and think how crazy it was that we motivated people by threatening them that if they didn't work, they would starve. And, you know, his belief is that that's a mischaracterization of sort of human nature, but that's the truth of the matter these days. And so worry is a huge thing that people deal with and that they're trying to sort of get rid of. Um but then the third thing, and this is sort of what you talked about on hollywood is is I think the biggest thing for most people and it's and it's that that correlation or perceived correlation between money and significance that if you can make a lot of money, then that shows that you are important and powerful and consequential in the world and you know, I don't know if everybody was like me. Um, I'm sure they're not, but I can speak for myself that you know I grew up, you know, with a narcissistic dad and you know parents that were sort of grappling with their own issues um, in such a way that they couldn't really focus on mine, and so I grew up with this deep sense of you know inconsequence and um, needing approval and wanting love and emptiness and. I basically believed that money would allow me to achieve those things. And I think that's true for a lot of people.
0: It's true for a lot of people. And, you know, when you speak of these things, you know, we have to bring up shame. Because shame is, a, shame is an affect. It's a, it's a quality that um, shapes so much of our behavior. Whether we're trying to compensate for shame that we feel, whether someone shamed us, or we just, you know, the, our culture shames us. Um, and it, it, it just shapes so much of what people will do, won't do or driven to. And, you know, in your, in your story, you talk a lot about how you were bullied in school and how you were shamed by your father and, you know, um, shame. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm so sort of thrilled to hear you say that, but also curious. You know, I've done a lot of reading of, you know, folks like John Bradshaw and Alice Miller who talk a lot about shame. And I do, I think that is 100% true. But I'm also curious as to like, I don't know, for you to talk a little bit more about what that means to you and how you see that actually working in the lives of people and maybe even working in our culture.
0: Well, you know, I think I've come to it a bit late, you know, in looking at it and looking at how shame really does drive people's behavior. And sometimes when you're looking at even friends or, you know, people that you're working with and you wonder why aren't they Doing this, why aren't they coming forward? Why aren't they, you know, doing the right thing? And and when you understand that the possibility of shame is underlying that, it's like you know these original pieces of shame where we just feel like you know we're going to be caught in something, like somehow we're a phony, or somehow we're not as good as, or we don't deserve. And if those messages have been reinforced in our in our upbringing. it becomes our operating system, and so many people, um, you know, are doing their best. They're, they're, you know, um, they're putting themselves out in the world. But really, it's like a compensation for a deeper feeling of of lack of worth. And I know that you know the authors that you're talking about, and and um, certainly anyone who has been in recovery from addiction from alcohol, drugs sex you know um many of the addictions are are needing to look at the the shame the embarrassment the feelings of inadequacy as well as um that's held in the trauma of some experiences that often these um substances are are um brought into to, to uh, mask right
1: I mean, I think that's 100% right. And, you know, I, I read this really fascinating book once by this guy named, I think his name was Jim Gilligan, and he had been the head of psychiatry for prisons in Massachusetts. And the book was called Violence. And basically what he explained was that every act of violence that he had ever seen was basically a reaction to a perceived slight. And that. These people, these sort of violent offenders, um, they were the you know had experienced the most childhood trauma and most childhood abuse, and so had the this sort of sense of worthlessness or, or or core of shame that when you know when somebody looked at them wrong or you know said something unkind, where you know, people that had more sense of their own worth or their own value might let that sort of slide off their back. These violent offenders would, you know, feel that if they didn't respond and assert themselves and assert their will and assert their value, then they would effectively, it was either that or sort of become sort of spiritually annihilated, which I sort of you know, likened to sort of like touch and become overwhelmed by that core of shame. And, you know, it was such an interesting sort of like idea for me that shame really is the, is the root of violence. And, you know, one of the things about my story as you read it is that there was like a lot of physical violence on my end, um, like me being violent when I was growing up. And then as I sort of became an adult and learned that it wasn't appropriate to punch people in the face in an office building, um, you know, that stuff I was able to sort of maintain, but then I went into a career that, you know, had a lot of sort of inherent violence in it, which is, you know, I think it was Gandhi that used to to talk about, you know, the, the violence of poverty, you know, that that's the most, and you know wall street is sort of the opposite of that right like wall street is the flip side of that coin that is you know in some sense accumulating and accumulating and you know in a large sense sort of causing poverty out into the world um and it's interesting to think of that i think as like just a more sort of socially accepted form of violence that may be motivated by uh a pretty similar shame core as the folks who are in prison.
0: yeah, you know it's it is it is driving us all and and that system is a sanctioned system, right? We say it's okay for that for that um, monetary system to exist. and um, you know the consequence is that that um, like you said, the enormous amount of poverty, the enormous amount of disregard right? Disregard for other people and not, not being concerned about, well, how are they going to eat? How are they going to live? Where are they going to sleep? What's, you know, what's going on, which leads me into, um, when you did take a turn, uh, and left wall street, you know, now you're, now you're actively involved in, um, uh, not just issues that address poverty, but issues that address um, food and and poverty. So you want to talk about that? Let's talk about grocery ships. Let's talk about um, every table. These things that you've created now.
1: Yeah. Um, thank you. So, um, you know, I left Wall Street in 2010, and then in 2013, I sort of went on one of those um, binge watching sprees of Netflix videos, documentaries around food. So it was like food ink and uh, forks over knives and hungry for change. And I sort of like went down this rabbit hole of issues around the food system. Um, But the one that really got me was one called a place at the table, which was about hunger in America and how in the richest country in the world, over 50 million people, many of them children are on food stamps or don't know where their next meal is coming from. And, you know, while that sort of broke my heart, um, what really blew my mind was the argument the film made about the correlation between, as you said, poverty and obesity and diabetes and other food-related illnesses. And basically the film said that there are areas of our country, low-income communities that are called food deserts because there's very little fresh food for sale and tons and tons of fast food. And you know, that sort of fact hit me on a super deep level. I think for a lot of reasons. One of the reasons was that, you know, my whole family has struggled with food stuff. I mean, my dad has diabetes. My mom got the lap band surgery. I've got a younger brother that also got stomach surgery and still struggles with it. And the truth is I've struggled with food um, issues myself on a pretty deep level and still do to this day, mostly because my favorite meal is basically a dozen donuts and some privacy, Uh You know, and 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 for me, it was, you know, that those issues had nothing to do with whether there was a grocery store around. It was all emotional and spiritual and addiction related. And and so understanding that there were these neighborhoods where, you know, one of the things people don't sort of often talk about is that in low income neighborhoods, there's, you know, much higher rates of stress depression, trauma, all those things that underlie addictive behavior, and then on top of that, there's no fresh food for sale and tons and tons of fast food. It seemed like an impossible trap for people, and I was sort of motivated enough by this film that I started making some phone calls and seeing what I could do. And that ultimately led to the formation of this nonprofit organization called Grocery Ships that basically helps parents living in food deserts get themselves and their family families healthy. And we do most of our work in South Los Angeles, which is a neighborhood where per capita income is thirteen thousand dollars a year and life expectancy is ten years lower than more affluent areas like Pacific Palisades or Beverly Hills. And a lot of the reason for that is food. And so grocery ships runs these programs where basically a, a mom, it's usually a mom, joins a group of 10 other moms who go through a six-month program built around two-hour weekly meetings in which there's nutrition education, healthy cooking skills, fresh produce is brought in each week. Uh, but importantly, the groups are structured not as didactic lectures, but as support groups where... The family sit in a circle and a ton of time is spent talking about those other issues that are important in addition to access and affordability and education. Things like, you know, your family's relationship with food and the stress in your lives and the burden, the emotional burdens you're carrying and the addictions you may be carrying. Um so that we started that in 2013, and it's continued to grow and sort of spread through word of mouth through Los Angeles. So that this year we'll do 30 groups, so 300 parents, um, and that's been a super deep passion of mine. Mostly because, you know, the truth is, it's about food, but even more, it's about emotional and social support and. What happens with these parents, you know, living in poverty is not just about not having enough money. It's about not having enough time and certainly time for yourself and support for yourself. And so these parents, you know, come to this group for education around food. But what they receive is much more than that. It's these bonds of friendship from Women and moms who are in the same exact boat as they are struggling with the same journey, carrying the same burden, and they grow incredibly close. And those bonds, to my mind, are actually much more important than the, the nutrition education. Um, so anyways, that's grocery ships. And then about two years ago, um, we started hearing from a lot of our parents, you know, this, this sort of idea over and over, which was, you know, I'm a single mom. I've got four kids and two jobs. And, you know, this produce is great and the cooking classes are great. And yet I don't have enough time to cook because I'm always on the go. And so I have to get food fast. And in that neighborhood, you know, that means McDonald's. And um, around that time, this young uh, former private equity guy had come to start volunteering for grocery ships, and then came to work for us full time. And he was this, you know, whip smart financial analysts, and him and I sat in our office in South LA and started trying to figure out a business model that would allow us to sell food at uh, prices lower than McDonald's in places like South LA. And what we came up with is Every Table, which is this awesome social enterprise where there's a commissary kitchen producing a large amount of healthy, delicious meals made by some of the best chefs in the country. I mean. A, Our head chef was the former head chef of Le Cirque, the, you know, one of the top three fine dining restaurants in New York City. And, and then at that commissary kitchen is packaging those meals in to-go containers. And that sounds simple, but that's really the key economic insight, which is that, you know, if you walk into a Chipotle, for example, what you'll see is 2,500 square feet of space, 10 to 15 employees, a fully built out commercial kitchen, all of which is why Chipotle will never sell a $4 burrito. Um, but for us, because we have a single kitchen that packages the food in go containers, then we open a network of small grab-and-go storefronts that are 500 to 600 square feet and have only two employees because nobody's asking whether you want pinto beans or black beans because the food's already packaged, even though it's made fresh that day, literally hours before. And so because of that, our cost structure is so low, that basically the total all-in cost to us is about $3.75. But then we sort of went one step further, and this was, I think, what has sort of resulted in a lot of the press coverage that we've gotten. And and, and what we did is we implemented a variable pricing structure. And we were sort of motivated by these moms of South L.A. who make – you know, twelve hundred dollars per month and spend seven hundred and fifty of that on rent and how do they make it through the end of the month every month is a struggle. And so for that mom, there's a huge difference between a meal that costs four dollars or a meal that costs six dollars. Whereas in, you know, West LA or more affluent areas, people are used to paying fourteen dollars for you know a healthy meal. And so we said, you know what, let's price our meals so that each store is profitable but just differently profitable so that we can really meet these customers where they're at. So in South LA where our first store is, the food is sold for $4, a profit but a small one. The next store is opening in downtown LA, a much more affluent area with a lot of office workers. And that store will be selling food for $8, which is, by the way, a great bargain versus what else is available, but still twice as much as in South L.A. And for us, the idea is that, you know, we don't have to make the same profit on every customer as long as the business as a whole is holistically profitable. And so that's where we are right now.
0: And it's the exact same meal, the exact same portion that's being sold in both places.
1: Not only that, the exact same aesthetic look and feel of the store. I mean, what was really, you know, I, I would have this feeling walking into a, a Tender Greens or a Sweet Green or a Chipotle that, you know, that they had really taken the trouble to create this beautiful aesthetic experience and where the, you know, um, you know the workers, you know, treated you so well because you were a customer. And then I'd go into stores in South L.A., and there was nothing like that except for fast food. And even in the fast food locations, it seemed to me that the employees treated the customers less well than they would have in, for example, the Beverly Hills McDonald's. Um, and so this business was all about, you know, not only making healthy food affordable, but making the experience. You know, are, are sort of the complete and total opposite of that, you know, Julia Roberts moment in Pretty Woman when she walks into that store and they won't treat her well because she doesn't look like she belongs in there. Like, we wanted people to walk into our stores in South L.A. And be able to buy meals for $4, but be amazed at not only how beautiful the store was, but how kind and respectful the staff was and how... You know, we wanted people to walk out of our stores sort of feeling 10 feet taller because there was so much overt respect for them in the stores.
0: That's beautiful. That's really beautiful. And what do you think the response will be, the people who are paying $8 for the meal, knowing that someone could be getting it for 4 that if they were to drive far enough, they would get it for 4
1: Well, you know, for one, they're welcome to, you know, like we, you know, we didn't want to discriminate, you know, and like test people's incomes or anything like that. Like, you know, there's people living in Pacific Palisades who are struggling to get by. And so if if it makes sense for them to drive to Englewood every week to get, you know, a bunch of every table meals, then they can do that. But for the most part, I think, and and we're hearing this already, like people are thrilled and excited because if you think about the value proposition for those – customers in more affluent areas, you know, they're getting a meal for 30 to 40% discount versus what they could get, you know, a similar meal elsewhere. And I, I say similar meal, but I literally think like our food is so off the charts good that, you know, they're coming in, they're getting something that's more convenient than usual because they can get in and out faster than they could at Tender Greens. It's less expensive. It's made by some of the best chefs in the country and on top of that they know that they're sort of supporting with their wallet a company that's bringing food into areas of the city that it's not available and you know, I, I, I've met very few people who think that it's right that mothers in our city can't put healthy food on the table for their kids. I mean, no i think healthy food is a human right and that it shouldn't be a luxury product and most people i think tend to agree with me and then even more than that you know even you know rich wealthy you know affluent people have huge hearts like we all do i mean i think we all are built to connect and contribute and sometimes there's Um, friction in figuring out exactly how to do that. And so every table offers these customers a great experience as a customer, but also an ability to, you know, make a purchase that helps someone else and they know it and they can see it and they feel it. And I I think that's going to drive not only interest and, you know, it's certainly driven a lot of press around us, but even more than that, I think that's going to drive, deep loyalty because I think people are going to be bringing their kids to every table and talking about the mission and why they're shopping there. Um, and not just because the kale chicken Caesar is so good. <laughs>
0: Tastes good. And you're doing good at the same time.
1: That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah.
0: Well, it's a, it's a, it's, it's certainly a model I've not heard of before. And um, it's, uh, you know, it's one that, uh, it's not, it's not a nonprofit organization. It's not the giving it's the, you know, it's still using a model where people are paying for their food, but they're getting so much more um, because it's spread out for those who can pay and those who cannot pay as much. That's right.
1: That's right. That's
0: totally yeah. That's totally so that's great. Well, um, it has been wonderful speaking to you. I, um, I think that, you know, every person has a story, right? And every, all of our, all of our journeys bring us to hopefully new awarenesses as we, as we grow. Um, hopefully uh, we don't have to hit bottom too hard before we learn the lessons that are, that are, you know, put before us. And it sounds like you have um really transformed not only your outer life, but your inner life. And, um, and uh, connected with what really matters to you uh and being of service to um to others, it's wonderful
1: well thank you that's really nice to hear and and I will say that i I think I've been very fortunate to have some great teachers in my life, so I'm thankful for that
0: yeah we all it it always we never do this alone we never do anything alone, and we all need um very strong allies. So yeah, bow to the teachers. So Sam, before we finish, why don't you tell people how they can uh, find out more about you, how they can find out more about Grocery Ships, and where they can go to
1: every table. Yeah, I mean, there's so much. They can go to everytable.com. Uh, they can go to grocerieships.org if they're interested in getting involved with the nonprofit. Uh, They can visit my personal website at sampolk.me. And even better, they can go to Amazon or any independent bookstore and purchase For the Love of Money by Sam Polk. Sure.
0: (laughs) Of course, there's that. Okay, well, thank you so much. And I wish you all the very best in all of these endeavors.
1: Thank you very much. I appreciate it.